0: Hello and welcome. It's an experimental live stream tonight. It's one in which I have forsaken the audio only format to come to you somewhat live and somewhat in person. Now, I'm experimenting with this as a Patreon video as I want to get feedback on the new setup and see how this actually works in practice. Also, modeling a new welcome. beard, so it's any an feedback on that is also welcome. Tonight. So, what are we doing with this the idea is that the audio only format on the ukraine war updates was getting a bit on the restrictive side in terms of the fact that i needed to or more to the point wanted to do certain things such as include more audio clips more video and that's what i'm going to be doing with this in the future so what i'm going to be doing is a regular video Uh, for the uh, Ukraine war updates. and I think what I'll be doing is keeping them to around about half an hour or so for the most part, depending upon if it's a particularly news heavy day, because what I wanted to do with these, and it's something I've been going back and forth on since I started and then stopped and then started and then stopped doing video updates, was looking for a purpose in doing them. You see, you can go to plenty of channels and get a rundown of how many tanks got blown up today, how many poor bastards got their lives ended in Zaporozhye, But I wanted to do something that would actually add something unique. So what I'm going to do with this is I'm just going to talk over a couple of things that happened today and then I'm going to move on to broader picture stuff. So what I thought I'd use this particular broadcast for is to go back again into the history. and to remind both yourselves and anybody else who's watching i.e MI5, GCHQ, you know the usual suspects exactly how we got to this point and how we got to the point where the youth and indeed the middle-aged men of Ukraine are being sacrificed in gigantic numbers in the Zaporozhye region as we speak. And that, of course, involves, like many of the questions under discussion today, a trip back into the 1990s. And one of the reasons why I will keep doing this, and will keep going back to the period after the collapse of the USSR, and sometimes even earlier than that, is that, of course, one thing that a Marxist analysis must do, in comparison to a bourgeois analysis, an idealist analysis, is to actually explore the history because when presented with the war by the bourgeois propagandists, be it the unsophisticated variety in the form of people who work for Sky News, or the slightly more sophisticated variety, such as the CIA Trotskyites in the AWL, or Agent Paul Mason, I only say they're slightly more sophisticated, is that they completely decontextualized and present things in a, a historical fashion, because they can't afford to actually explore the history because that would blow up their whole interpretation of this particular war. So what I say by going back into the history is, and what I mean by that is, we go back and we start looking at the political developments in Ukraine since around about 1991, since the Soviet Union imploded, or more to the point, was criminally collapsed by its rotten ruling clique. and we find ourselves looking at the developments in Ukraine, because as I said, when the special military operation began over a year ago now, almost 18 months ago, the fate of Ukraine is not only a miserable one, but also a lesson for all of those who occupy the post-Soviet space, and a lesson in the plans of imperialism and how they play out over the long term. Because we are fortunate in some ways to have on hand and available to us, enough evidence to compile a clear list of imperialism's crimes when it comes to Ukraine. So let's first of all, though, start with the obvious, which is a couple of details, or rather more accurately, some major developments over the last two weeks, which is, of course, the offensive or counteroffensive, if you will, in the Zaporozhye region and what this has meant to the war itself now of course this offensive from the ukrainian armed forces or at least the armed forces wearing the uniform of ukraine who knows how many nato forces exist within them as i've said before we keep getting told the story that there are at least ten thousand poles there maybe more and numerous brits americans frenchmen israelis brazilians you name it it's a motley crew of nato countries and their allies so the forces attacking in Zaporozhye region right now are engaging in the most overhyped and over trailed event since the Star Wars prequels, and with similarly disappointing results, I would imagine. So, back at around Christmas time, in fact, at the time of Zelensky's visit to Washington, we started to hear about the fact there was going to be this big new offensive. And, of course, it's rather strange that you would announce your intentions to do this in almost half a year in advance it's rather strange certainly the Russians don't behave like that certainly they don't telegraph their intentions and announce them on every social media platform the opposite in fact now to understand why Zelensky was bigging this up why the possibly late General Zeluzny though who knows there was not keen on it was because that anybody with any military experience or just the ability to read a map or examine the details of the Russian heavy defensive fortifications in the Zaporozhye region would tell you that a Ukrainian force attacking with little to no air cover and no support from sea-based assets and even with the full support of the American electronic surveillance suite that they have available to them very limited ability to actually strike in a serious, heavy and sustained way upon those Russian fortifications. They are in fact just throwing these mobile armoured brigades of recruits that have been barely trained in, as Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said recently, 30 or so different countries in half a dozen different languages, and then throwing them at these multiple lines of Russian defence, which we should remember were constructed for this very purpose. They were constructed under the instructions of General Suravikin, when he was appointed as overall commander back in September of last year, and they have been developed ever since then. There are apparently up to four lines of defence, the last one uh, which is the most heavily fortified and defended, but so far in the two weeks of the offensive as we have seen develop, the Ukrainians haven't got beyond the first line of contact. and. If you believe the figures coming from the Russian Ministry of Defense, they have lost 10,000 men, 10,000 killed in two weeks. And there are some horrific stories coming out of Ukrainian troops being barbecued en masse by Russian flamethrower ammunition, and Ukrainian commanders sending their men into death traps in villages and towns which are not only fortified by the Russians but comprehensively covered by their devastating range of artillery and air power and so you have to return to the question which we've kept asking ever since i started doing the regular ukraine war updates over a year ago as to what exactly is going on and what is going on is of course that mr zelensky and his handlers in london and washington in particular are not running a war they are running what appears to be some kind of netflix show Now that sounds like a flippant comment but i'm entirely serious Zelensky, of course, is a cipher. He is an actor turned politician who got his popularity boost by playing a president on TV. He was apparently, according to many different sources now, sincere in wanting to implement the Minsk Accords, but was told not just by the heavy mob in Ukraine itself, but by the external actors and the real masters of the situation in Washington and London, that should he do that then, well, his safety might be compromised. So of course, consequently, at the end of 2019, he flips and starts pursuing a more aggressive agenda because his very life depends upon it. No brave man of principle he, that is Zelensky. So the whole Zelensky presidency has been designed essentially as a fiction. He is a fictional president. There is no real power that he exercises because Ukraine doesn't have any real sovereignty. And here we must dive back into the history. So this whole offensive, just before we get into that history, has been designed for the purposes of the consumption of the masters, the consumption of those who really control the situation, which are those clowns and butchers that sit in the Pentagon and the Ministry of Defense in London. and. The purpose of it is to sustain the war and to sustain Western, most specifically European support for Ukraine in order that the war can continue. Because this is the only strategy the Western powers now have. It's the only strategy that the American administration, the Biden administration, can really agree upon. There are those like the ultra-aggressive faction around people like Victoria Newland, who are commonly described as the neocons, though their difference with the other factions in Washington DC and London is marginal and minimal. There are those like them who wish to continue escalating the war, who would love to see Polish troops march into Ukraine, who would, by the way, be slaughtered, according to every military expert who has been proven to have any degree of accuracy when it comes to observation about this war so far. But there are those who would do that. There are others who just wish to keep this thing going as long as they can in the hope that either something will come up The sanctions will bite, something will change inside the power structure in Moscow, Putin will be removed, but of course, as always with the intelligence estimates of the US imperialists, their estimates are nearly always wrong because of course they assume that Putin is this all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing figure, when in actual fact though he is of course a very significant figure, he is a man who is fundamentally a chairman, a chairman of a Collective, a group that came to power in the early 2000s, centered around those who came up through the St. Petersburg political structure in the 1990s, who, though they consist of various different factions and belief systems and material interests, all shared a vision of a re-empowered Russian state and shared a common belief in the need to close off the chaotic period in the 1990s. And for certain members of the Russian ruling class that made a good deal of sense. They had fundamentally achieved their objectives in the 1990s. They had, in the words of Anatoly Chubais, sold off the planned economy to the lowest bidder. They had comprehensively destroyed the planned economy and therefore the time had come to stabilize the situation. But of course what they didn't count on or what they didn't consider was the fact that even a Russia that was prepared to be just a gas station with a government attached to it, run by a dictator, was, again I'm quoting the late and unlamented John McCain now, was something that was only going to be acceptable to the US imperialists as long as it remained completely supine. And of course a nation the size of Russia with its immense amount of resources, and a nation that was now ruled firmly by a Bonapartist regime which wanted to reset and re-empower the Russian state was not going to remain acceptable to the US imperialists for any length of time. And in fact, that proved to be the case very quickly. The reality of the 1990s was that even then, in the Yeltsin period, the state machines, or more specifically the secret state machine in the United States in the form of the CIA, and in Britain in the form of MI6, continued with their operations against the Russian state in the form of the Chechen terrorist campaigns, which the CIA and MI6 were, according to Putin, intimately involved in. So again, how acceptable was any form of Russian state that retained any territorial integrity and credibility to the US imperialists and their most immediate allies? The answer is not very. Remember they wrote down their intentions in the early 1990s, as early in fact as 1992 with the original Wolfowitz Memorandum, when they were very clear what they wanted which was that no state should be allowed to exist in such a strong fashion as the USSR had existed, i.e. being able to control all this land mass with this immense amount of natural resources within it. So now we'll come back to the Russian economy later on because there are several points that emerge from the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum that was held last weekend in Russia that are relevant to this particular point. But the key thing to bear in mind is that The imperialists telegraphed their intentions very early on. No state that was anything more than just a sort of pathetic basket case was going to be acceptable to them, even one that was still prepared to play the role of being principally a provider of raw resources. And this is still, of course, a debate inside the Russian ruling circles to this day. But again, more on that later. So let's. Go back into the history then. Why is this offensive failing so badly? It's failing so badly on a purely military basis because they are attacking an entrenched Russian position that is well defended, that has comprehensive air cover and artillery cover, which has very well trained men manning the lines, and so on a military basis that's why this offensive is failing. On a more long term basis, the offensive is failing because of course Ukraine has no ability to produce its own aircraft anymore, it has no ability to mass produce artillery anymore, it has almost no industrial base. And this isn't just because the Russians have comprehensively gone after this, it has no industrial base anyway because the remaining industry, the bulk of heavy industry that still remained in Ukraine was in the east, it was in Donbass and that is what of course broke away in 2014 and as Russian Marxists in numerous political organizations have observed since the beginning of the Special Military Operation what in fact was going on inside Ukraine after the Maidan coup was in fact a class war disguised as a nationalistic one. But let's go all the way back now to 1991 to remind ourselves of what occurred here because in the early 1990s the Ukrainian oligarchy, as it was being formed, expected to be ushered into the new Europe and expected to play its role there as a manufacturing base. But of course, Ukrainian oligarchy, much like the early Russian capitalist class, proved to be completely incapable of doing that. As Putin, as the Communist Party of the Russian Federation as well have observed, by 1991, Ukraine was one of the manufacturing centres of the Soviet Union if calculated on its own terms, i.e. separated from the wider USSR, it was one of the biggest manufacturing hubs in all of Europe. And you could see why the early leaders of Ukraine, Karavchuk, Kushma and others, thought that they were on the winner. They had this huge industrial base. They could surely retool this to service the needs of the Western capitalists. But they, of course, could not have been more wrong. Because what came to exist in Ukraine, as it did in Russia, as it did in all of the former Soviet states, was a completely parasitic form of capitalism. Because of course, if we look at capitalism globally, it has played out its historically progressive role. It's only playing a progressive role to a degree that it still is in some countries, because it's married to a very strong developmentalist state, or in China's case, it's kept to a degree under control by the planning apparatus of the People's Republic. And in the Russian case and in the Ukrainian case, this parasitic form of capitalism was just let off the leash. So what does it do? Well, it degenerates immediately to the point where it doesn't want to produce commodities anymore. I've mentioned many times one of my favorite Marx quotations from Capital Volume 2, where he illustrates very clearly in that book. In the first chapter, actually, how the process of deindustrialization is baked into capitalism from the very beginning. How it wants to go from a cycle of money, commodity to money, to just money to money, to cut out the commodity production entirely. And what's the quickest way to do that? Well, if you're a Ukrainian oligarch in 1992 to 93, the best and quickest way is to asset strip whatever company you've managed to steal close it down, sell it off, sell off the land, cash out, run away to Cyprus, or at least stash the money in Cyprus, which is what an awful lot of them did. You see, back in 92, the Ukrainian state inherited a comprehensive aircraft production industry. Of course, it had oil and gas, it had textiles, it had armaments production of all different kinds, it had elements of the Soviet aerospace industry. Now, the difficulty is, of course, that all of this was linked into a still much wider planned economy even by 1991 with all the damage that the Khrushchevite revisionists had done to it this was still a planned economy that stretched all the way from Lvov in the west over to Vladivostok in the east and without access to that wider planned economy a lot of these industries struggled in terms of being able to have the supply chains in place that they needed to continue producing and of course when exposed to western competition they got annihilated a lot of the time because the Ukrainian state was too weak to put in any protection. In fact the only post-Soviet state other than Russia under Putin that put in place any kind of barrier to the kind of economic collapse we saw in Ukraine, in the Baltic states and other places was of course Belarus under the old Soviet official Lukashenko in a loose coalition with the Belarusian Communist Party who at least put some limits on what was going to be a disastrous period of deindustrialization. So, Ukraine through the 90s and into the 2000s, the west of it certainly gets deindustrialized. Donbass in the east, of course, retains a large amount of heavy industry. And Ukraine goes through a boom period, relatively speaking, up to 2008, where its sale of oil and gas and its position as a transit point for the sale of Russian oil and gas coined it a lot of money. It was, relatively speaking, coining it in. And, of course, this encouraged further parasitism on behalf of the Ukrainian capitalist class. And, as we see now, when the Russians take over these various places in Donbass, a lot of the heavy industry there hadn't been invested properly in years, and a lot of it was in a relatively decayed state, even though in the East it still existed. And that's why I say what can be seen here developing is a class war disguised as a civil war it's in reality it's both because the industrial working class of the east proved to be a barrier to the parasitism of the ukrainian ruling class and i'll explain further what i mean by that the ukrainian oligarchy or ukrainian capitalist class it is a purely parasitic entity It never wanted to invest anything just asset strip and take the cash out of the country and there was never a Lukashenko figure or a Putin figure who would step in and even put a handle on the situation and clamp down on this not even in the way that Putin did with the Russian oligarchy in the early 2000s when he said you can keep your money but keep your hands out of the state so what the Ukrainian ruling class wanted to do was to just asset strip everything, destroy everything, and one of the barriers to them doing that is the industrial working class, but it is also the Ukrainian Communist Party, which throughout the 1990s and into the early 2000s was the, at one point anyway, the largest single party in the Ukrainian parliament. And this is very crucial to bear in mind because the combination of a relatively powerful industrial working class and a strong Ukrainian Communist Party acted as a constraint on the worst excesses of the Ukrainian oligarchy for a while, which is why, of course, they prioritized destroying the Ukrainian Communist Party and they looked for ways to carry that out. Now, the way they ultimately settled on was twofold. First of all, the more rabid elements who were associated with the funding of Banderism and all kinds of other neo-fascist groupings, they, of course, acted as the open servants of imperialism and created the so-called Orange Revolution in 2004, which was about trying to bring Ukraine into the EU, even though the EU was keeping Ukrainians at arm's length for a very long time, and to a certain extent still is, even at this stage. And the other way they tried to go about this was to carve up the Communist Party's vote. And how do you do that? Well. The Ukrainian ruling class turned to a method that the wider European ruling classes had engaged in post World War Two, which is that you build up an apparently social democratic alternative. And one of the things that the leadership of the Ukrainian Communist Party often said was that they were damaged by the oligarchs funding and setting up the party that was to become the party of Viktor Yanukovych. Party known as the Party of the Regions, which posed as this Social Democratic Party, and due to the fact that it had a large amount of funding behind it from the oligarchy, was able to split up the Communist Party vote inside Ukraine. I'm sure as well, and it's been documented on various different sites that I've looked at uh, from Ukrainian Marxists chronicling the failures of the Communist Party of Ukraine in the 1990s and 2000s, I'm sure there were errors made there they always are by every party that goes through this particularly testing period, it'd be interesting to see how many of us could stand up to the challenges faced by communists in Ukraine in the 90s and 2000s. But certainly the Ukrainian oligarchy managed to damage it and peel away a lot of its votes with the setting up of the party of the regions, which of course then gets itself into a contest which it didn't really want with the more aggressive parts of the Ukrainian ruling class that are openly funding fascist organizations that are desperate to join the European Union because fundamentally what do they want to do? Asset strip and destroy the country and crucially destroy the final elements of the Soviet legacy which included subsidized housing and of course subsidized heating for Ukrainian workers. And they want to get rid of all of that. They want to get rid of absolutely everything. Destroy and asset strip the entire country. And EU membership was seen as their way of getting to that point. Now of course, they weren't able to get their um, Yushchenko, the president that they brought in in a coup in 2004. And again, I'll refer to something that Putin said, which is very accurate, in a meeting he held last week with war correspondents. He observed that the 2004 so-called Orange Revolution was in actual fact a coup of a slightly less violent variety than the one that followed in 2004 but still with violence attached to it and a coup nonetheless which it was. It was an overturning of a legitimate election again regardless of what you think of Yanukovych and the party of the regions. He won that election in 2004 and was stitched up out of it by the openly fascistic elements headed by Yushchenko and backed up of course by imperialism. And then we get to 2014 and of course the need of the most parasitic elements of the Ukrainian ruling class to destroy the final elements of the Soviet system has got ever more desperate as Ukrainian capitalism has stagnated and declined ever more. So what do they do? They sponsor an even more violent terroristic coup, and this time they don't take any chances. They absolutely gut the trade union movement. They ban the Communist Party and they look to militarily annihilate the eastern regions that still resisted them, because this is fundamentally about the ability of this most parasitic element of the Ukrainian capitalist class to decimate and destroy the working class of Ukraine. That's what the coup in 2014 was fundamentally all about, finally destroying the last elements of the Soviet legacy, finally being able to liquidate all of the heavy industry that they could possibly find, asset strip everything, and take the money out of the country. That's what this has all been about, fundamentally. And it's all dressed up in this bullshit about self determination, etc., etc., and Ukrainian sovereignty and democracy. All garbage, all top to bottom lies, all cynical exercises, and complete and utter ridiculous propaganda. And this is, of course, how we have got to the point that we are at today. This completely parasitic entity, the Ukrainian capitalist class, has been and is a total slave now of US imperialism. By the time we got to early last year, early 2022, there was no Ukrainian sovereignty left. The US embassy in Kiev had over 700 people working for it. They were attached to every single ministry. There's a video of Victoria Newland in Congress back in, I believe, 2019 bragging about how many people they've got attached to each government ministry in Ukraine. You look at the documents that were leaked online from the National Endowment for Democracy and other various different Washington think tanks and intelligence agencies, USAID, things like that, the methods of colonial control, the organizations of colonial control that the US uses. You see that they were designing every single thing in Ukraine down to the parking schemes in Kiev itself. Zelensky visibly had no power. It wasn't just that the Azov guys told him to fuck off when he went and tried to talk to them on the front lines in Donbass. It's that the Americans basically made it clear to him that he had no power because what did the Americans do? Well, they took out his main sponsor, Kolomoisky. There was a dispute between Kolomoisky and various other different oligarchs, Poroshenko included, and ultimately the Americans decided to put Kolomoisky in his place by opening up investigations into his business affairs, And, of course, when that happened and it all started to go wrong, Kolomoisky quit the country that he had done so much to ruin and fled to Israel, just like many others did. It's a home for all kinds of rogues, including Anatoly Chubias, the arch privatizer in chief from the Russian Federation. Maybe he can get a drink with Kolomoisky in downtown Tel Aviv. So the situation is that, of course, by 2022, Ukraine had no more sovereignty than any colony did in the early 20th century. Everything that went into Ukraine and went out of it was controlled by the US imperialists, their British ally, to a certain extent the Dutch, to a certain extent the French and the Germans. And what you see is that this process of the complete imperialist domination of Ukraine speeds up as the war goes on. There's all this crap about rallying around the flag, but in reality, the class war on the Ukrainian working class only speeded up after the beginning of the Russian Special Military Operation. Zelensky, of course, being the front man that he is, went around to every single investor conference he can possibly find over the last year and has been rapidly selling off every single last thing in Ukraine. He has, of course, practically banned the trade union movement. Any trade union that remains is completely under government control, and it is, in actual fact. A Pinochet type regime that Zelensky is fronting up with the American imperialists making all the key decisions. That's why of course Blackrock went in there to meet with Zelensky to supervise the liquidation of all the assets of Ukraine because all the assets of Ukraine are up for purchase and have been bought out already with the uh, the urging of course of the White House. And what you have to understand is also that the aid that the Ukrainians are supposedly getting from the White House and from Downing Street and from Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin. None of this comes for free. None of these are gifts, not the weapons shipments, not the support for the continued functioning of the government. None of it is. These are all loans. It's what Rishi Sunak has announced more of today, more loans for the Ukrainian government. What you, the Ukrainian government is having done to it is that it has been turned into a debt slave of Washington and London and the other imperialist powers. The reason why back in 2013 Yanukovych, crook though he may be, balked at the Ukraine um, agreement with the EU, which incidentally he only read at the last minute. His negotiators did this bargain with the EU and Yanukovych was barely involved. They insisted upon which, of course, the key demand of the Ukrainian ruling class, which is the dismantling of all subsidies to the working class in the form of housing and heating. And Yanukovych knew that that was political death for him. He's not a man of great principle, but he was a man who knew when his political grave was being dug for him. And that's when, of course, he bulked. And that is when, of course, they triggered the Maidan. Dressed up in EU flags, it was, in actual fact, an aggressive assemblage of fascist organizations paid for by US imperialism and the local Ukrainian oligarchy for the specific purpose of waging a brutal class war on Ukrainian working class. And everything that has followed since then is a continuation of that. And everything the imperialists are doing now is, of course, a further extension of it. And they have turned Ukraine into nothing but a beggar nation that will be, or at least whatever's left of it will be, heavily indebted to the US ruling class in perpetuity. And this is maybe one of the reasons why the US is desperate to continue the war in the hope that they can negotiate some kind of outcome that will retain something of a Ukrainian state. Because otherwise they are looking at a gigantic loss for both them and all their vassal states in terms of the disappearing investment they've made in Ukraine. If they get to hold on to some form of Ukrainian state that can essentially be turned into a permanent vassal, they can at least say that the debt is on its way back somehow. But this is what the Ukrainian ruling class and their political puppets, Yushchenko, Poroshenko, and now Zelensky, to a certain extent Yanukovych as well, have done. This is what capitalist rule has done to Ukraine. Since 1991, they took one of the most advanced and industrialized elements, one of the most advanced nations within the old Soviet Union. They asset-stripped it and turned it into an indebted beggar nation that is wholly owned and controlled by U.S. imperialism. And if you look at what is being done in Donbass now, at least the Russian Federation is actually investing in the city. If you see some of the interviews with the residents, they talk about how there's more reconstruction work and investment going into somewhere like Mariupol or Melitopol now than ever happened under the Ukrainian oligarchy. Which of course leads me to a brief mention of the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. where. There were over 160 countries present, despite the threats of imperialism towards anybody who looked like they were going to participate. But the big news out of that is, of course, that there is a very real debate inside the Russian government now as to the way forward economically. There are still those who, as the leader of the Russian Communist Party, Gennady Zuganov observed, are still running around like it's the 1990s. Who are still trying to pretend that the best way forward for the Russian Federation is wholesale privatization of assets, as if there's much left, as Zhuganov correctly pointed out. But what this is really about is a fundamental division within the Russian government and within the wider Russian ruling class itself. You see, there is one school of thought embodied by people like Peskov and others who favor a return to the raw resource model that the Russian economy was run on for a long time, up to 2014 at least, which was just selling the raw resources either eastward or westward and not investing much in terms of the development of the Russian economy itself. Then there's another group which held a meeting at the same time as the International Economic Forum was held, which was held in the Kremlin and consisted of, amongst others, people like Denis Pushilin the acting head of the Donetsk People's Republic and a series of other people from Putin's office and the hierarchy of the Russian state who were holding a discussion on what could be learnt from the period of Soviet industrialization from 1929 to 1955. So this was some high profile people who were involved in this discussion and I'll be coming back to this tomorrow to talk about it some more because it's worth dwelling on in some detail. There was a lot of focus and a lot of condemnation poured over people like Peskov and Herman Hreff, the head of Spurbank, who were talking about the need for you know, return to privatization. But that isn't really on the cards, I don't think, because the only reason why the Russian economy has survived as far as it has, and the only reason why it has started to grow again, isn't because they've gone back to the policies of the 1990s and the Yeltsin period, it's because they have been forced away from just being a gas station run by a dictator, again, thank you John McCain for the phrase, and they've been forced into a position where they are actively using a more developmentalist model that is clearly influenced by the current model used by the People's Republic of China, but also places like Singapore and even places like Taiwan or South Korea in its industrialization phase, which is that they have used as the academic from the University of Birmingham, Richard Connolly, documents in his work on the Russian economy and how it has circumvented sanctions, they have been using the flows of capital that have come in from the sale of oil and gas to position the Russian state in the middle of a network of economic relations whereby the Russian state uses its position as the principal controller of things like Gazprom to push capital into investing into other areas that were uh, disinvested in, that were subject to deindustrialization in the 1990s and 2000s, what they've been doing is they've been pushing, using the powers of the state, capital into these areas and running state-sponsored reindustrialization plans in areas such as the car industry, the air, aircraft building industry, the machine tool industry and others that were completely run down in the 90s because of course, Western imperialism didn't want a, even a capitalist Russia to be able to develop these industries, and the fact that you now have high-ranking Kremlin officials running meetings that are chronicled on the Kremlin website about what they can learn from the industrialization process between 1929 and 1955, that period in Soviet history, which even the leaders such as Khrushchev, and especially Gorbachev, were telling the Soviet people to disavow, now you have very high-ranking people discussing what they can learn from it. Now, this doesn't mean that the Soviet Union is being reborn or anything like that. What the Putin government has had to face is the fact that Russian capitalism is completely parasitic. Putin may never say this, but he's been forced to reckon with the fact that if left to its own devices, Russian capitalism will revert to its parasitic nature and will sell the country down the river, which is what, of course, all the Russian communists and even the bourgeois nationalists to a certain extent are petrified of happening, that the influence of this parasitic and treasonous layer of the Russian bourgeoisie will reassert itself and sell out the whole country. That's becoming increasingly hard for them to do. I think the fact that the comments of Herman Gref and Peskov were given as much prominence as they were was probably partly down to the fact that there is a faction fight going on inside united russia party and inside the kremlin and also perhaps to do what putin always does which is every time he moves towards more state control he has to try and reassure and pat the hand of the nervous capitalist class that he's not moving back to the bad old days of the planned economy even though of course without a system of economic planning that they put in place since 2014 that has seen agriculture revive and seen certain aspects of manufacturing revive they could not have survived as long as they have done. And in fact, the longer the war goes on, the more sanctions get put on the Russian Federation, the more they get cut off from the West, the stronger this developmentalist model of the Russian economy becomes. So in reality, the U.S. imperialists and their European vassal states killed off the political ground upon which their own allies in Russia were standing by putting all these sanctions on them, by cutting off the ability of the oligarchs to move their money into the West, even though, of course, many of them are still trying. And by forcing the hand of the Russian government into actually developing this more state-run model, they have actually killed off, to a certain extent, the political grounds upon which the comprador bourgeoisie in Russia exist. And it is tremendously unfortunate that no such force, even a force as moderate as Putin, ever emerged inside Ukraine. To end this where we started, Ukraine has been subjected to one of the most hideous class wars that certainly the European continent has seen for a very long time. It has been subjected to endless and merciless brutality from a bunch of complete parasites who have subjected the working class to enormous and unending violence and whose actions have led directly to the point where now thousands upon thousands of working class Ukrainian men are dying in the fields of the Zaporozhia region for the purposes of what? So that the US empire can keep control of what is left of Ukraine, so they can avoid admitting that they have lost a war against the Russian Federation, so they can avoid being revealed as what Mao Zedong said they were a very long time ago, which is nothing but paper tigers. Weak states that appear mighty, but in actual fact cannot fight a war against the Russian Federation because they have such a weak connection now with the masses of their own nations, that is the US imperialists do, the British imperialists do, they could not engage in open warfare because they could not summon up the nation's resources that would be required to staff a mobilized army. The connection with the masses is too weak, their governments are too weak, their industries collapsed and atrophied, their states and political classes too despised to do anything like that at this stage. This doesn't mean that imperialism is not still dangerous, and of course the circumstances can always change, but as things stand right now, these wretched cowards are getting the Ukrainian working class to die in vast numbers because they are too weak and pathetic, useless, cowardly and bankrupt to risk their own stability by trying to get the wider population of the US and Britain to go and fight in Ukraine so I will leave it there for this inaugural live stream be sure to feedback on how you think it's gone but until tomorrow thank you for watching and I'll be back with you again